I think back when Ely Calloway created the Big Bertha and Karsten Solheim created the Ping Irons, they were seeking perimeter weighting and perimeter weighting at the time was it. They went to work on a driver and an iron that had perimeter weighting. And when they got done, the club looked the way it did because that's the way perimeter weighting looked. It wasn't the other way around. They didn't worry about the fact that this Big Bertha was an oversized metal wood that looked like a snow shovel with no hosel. And it had this sound to it. And then the iron looked like something that an alien designed. It was so radical. But what they had was visual technology. They had something that was radically different, but they could back it up with performance. And they didn't worry about the looks. The looks were secondary to performance. You take that and then you match it up with that quote that I gave her from Booker T. Washington, mm. which is to do a common thing in an uncommon way. So when you mix those two things together, that's where Squares came from. Welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast, where we speak with the influencers, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and innovators who are shaping the future of golf. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're new to the Mod Golf Podcast, thanks so much for joining us. And if you enjoy what you hear, please subscribe to the show to learn about our upcoming episodes, listen to some previous ones, and to enter our latest golf product giveaway contest. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today my guest is Bob Winskonitz, who is the founder of Squares, a golf shoe to help you quite simply play better golf. Bob is a three-time startup founder and was the Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing with Arnold Palmer Golf Company. So not only do we have the opportunity today to learn from an accomplished entrepreneur and business executive, we're also going to learn about ground force reaction, biomechanics, and foot movement. I hope you're getting excited now. What are those, you might ask? Well, I'm going to tell you. After this conversation, we understand all these and so much more. So with that introduction, hey, Bob, thanks for joining us today and welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Colin. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you and I had a great intro conversation when we connected about, gosh, about a month or so ago and within five seconds, like, Bob, come on, you got to share your entrepreneurial journey, the things you have done in the space and what you plan on doing and are working on. No spoiler yet. We're not going to talk about how you're expanding into other sports, but we're going to get into that in a few minutes here. But I always love to ask this first question. It's always around golf to start with. So Bob, share with us the first time you ever picked up a golf club, your first golf experience, we like to talk about the power of invitation. Who was that person or people that invited you to pick up that club in the first place? You know, it was my father. My father was an avid golfer. I think I caddied before I ever swung a club. And I was a young kid and my father used to take me to the golf course and I'd, I'd carry his golf bag. I think it was after the round, he went into the grill room and I took his clubs instead of chopping up the driving range. But that's my first earliest recollection of the first time that I played golf. Nice, positive experience. So to, to, so to expand on that, can you, can you share a magical moment, something, I don't know if you have any hole-in-ones or something that either you did personally with a golf club in your hand as an awesome memory or something that you experienced that someone else had the joy of living? You know, it's interesting. I've never had a hole-in-one, but I've seen three of them. So it's like, <laughs> I tell people I'll be lucky if I hit the green, but I've had my moments on the golf course. I was always a long ball hitter mm -hmm. and people brag about that, but people joke about me. They say, you're all postage, no zip code. <laughs> I've had my moments on the par fives where in one round, I eagle back to back par fives because where most people are hitting and laying up, I was fortunate enough to land the greens. 
I think that's probably one of the things I remember most is that one round that I had back-to-back Eagles, and it was a fun day. Wow. Well, that that's an accomplishment. Well, hopefully you broke 80 that day. I don't want to hear about the other 16 holes. Hopefully they went okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not answering that question. Okay. We'll, we'll leave that. We'll leave that be. Okay. <laughs> Next thing I want to ask you so we can learn a little more about you before we really dive deep into things here, Bob. People always ask as far as mentors, people that really uh, influence you in a positive way or experiences you've had in your professional career. I want to flip it around a little bit. As I've asked this question a couple of times, I love the response we've received. Share with us what you would consider, at whatever age, the worst job you've ever had in your life. But what do you take away positively? What did you learn from that that you've ingrained into your professional life afterwards? You know, the worst job I ever had, it wasn't the job. It was the circumstances, now that Mm. I think about it. I was working a a full-time job right before I was going to college, cleaning buses at a bus company. About halfway through the summer, my father came to me and said, listen, you're, you're not making the money that you committed to in order to go to school. And so I decided to take a job that started at, I believe it was nine o'clock at night and went to six the next morning, washing floors. Wow. So it'd sit there and wash floors from nine till 5.30 in the morning. Just the time frame and the, the washing the floors, then waxing them and buffing them. It was probably the worst job that I had, just based upon the circumstances. And working the graveyard shift there, where it sounds like you had a lot of time to think about what you did not want to do in your life, and apparently that was it. <laughs> so then I've you had focus- a couple others, too. I worked in a dye mill, putting the yarn into uh, these heaters. And during the summer, it was about 100 degrees out. All they do is open the window. And next to that heater, it was about 200 degrees. The good news about that, it was a great weight loss program, but it was a terrible job. <laughs> Wow. Well, it sounds like you were able to formulate very early on what you did not want to do with your life. And if I understand, you focused in college and in marketing and business. So tell us about as we lead up to where you are with Squares, I always like to get the backstory here first. So before leading up to your work at Arnold Palmer Golf Company, let us know what you did first to kind of formulate the foundation for you, even as an entrepreneur. I understand you're a three-time startup founder. So give us a bit of the backstory leading up to working for Arnold Palmer Golf Company. I came out of college and went right into the consumer goods business. It was a very competitive business. And interestingly enough, I sold Flex Shampoo and Mitchum Deodorant. I was out there competing in the shampoo and deodorant world with Procter & Gamble. And we would go out and we'd have accounts in the New England market. And then I'd have to go in the stores and build the displays. But it taught me early on about the marketing product positioning and how these big companies spend money in advertising and promote their products, encourage retail purchases. So it gave me a good baseline. I worked some very good companies and it was interesting. I I say this all the time when people say, you know, you, you launch a footwear product and you're competing against somebody like FootJoy. And my whole career, I've never worked for the Coke and the Pepsi. I've always worked mm-hmm. for the number four and the five brand and it always had to find a different way of doing things. And I think that's a lot of what my career afforded me at this point was not working for the biggest and the best at the time, but trying to get there, trying to figure out different ways to block and tackle. I think that's that's the key to entrepreneurialism is the old Booker T. Washington do a common thing in an uncommon way. 
I've always looked at it that way, that how do I market differently, market better? How do I position differently and better? And a lot of my career took me to that point to the first company that I founded, which was uh, in the golf world. Actually, it started out in golf and evolved away from golf. And then eventually I sold that company because the technology we developed was applicable in many other areas. Mm -hmm. And then I got away from the golf industry, was in the medical device industry, running a company there for a while. And that really wasn't my cup of tea, so to speak. And I moved on from there and, and then founded Squares. So I'm curious, so why golf for you? Have you always been a golfer? Is it just recreationally? Has it been part of your family DNA? It sounds like golf always seems to pull you back. With your experience, you can do anything. Why golf? What was the attraction, the gravitational pull that golf had on you? I was working for a company called Alberto Culver, and mm. they're known for a whole variety of products, one of which is VO5 shampoo. And, and I was working there, and I developed a friendship with a gentleman who used to run their national accounts program, and he left and went to work for McGregor Golf. Mm. I lost touch with him, but a year later, my phone rang and it was him and his name was John McNulty. And John said, Bob, listen, I'd like you to come work for me in the golf industry. Now, up until that point, I played golf. I was a member and I enjoyed golf, but I didn't have any insight into the business of golf. I just knew that I enjoyed the game and everything about it. And he said, before you make a decision, I'd like you to come to the PGA show. It's coming up in two weeks. I'm going to send you a ticket. Come on down and take a look. This was well, what year for context here? Oh, boy, this was 1997, Okay, 95. Yeah. I walked in to that PGA show, and you can imagine, your first time in there, it's like you died and went to golf heaven. Yeah. And you see all these big companies, you see all the products, and I was overwhelmed. And I got to see the way the business was transacted, and I left there. And as I'm walking out, I said, John, I don't care what you pay me, I'm in. I'm in. I want yeah. to come work for you. And that was it. And from that day forward, everything I had learned prior to about market positioning and product positioning and all of this stuff, I came into McGregor at a fairly high level that I could influence those type of things. And, and I did, and I enjoyed it. And you could see the fruits of your labor. And the other thing too, is in this business, there's so many good people. There is mm -hmm. just so many good people that once you get in and you leave, which I did, I missed it. Right, and, right. And uh, I missed the people, and I still kept in contact with a lot of people in the industry. And so that was kind of the lore that got me in. My first taste was that PGA show. Got it. So with McGregor, with the connection here, and I'm not sure how this all comes together here. So with Arnold Palmer Golf Company, was there a connection there with McGregor, or was that your next step? Tell us about that journey. Yeah. In fact, what happened was John McNulty, who brought me in, John left after about a year and a half of being at McGregor. John got promoted to a position at Wilson Sporting Goods. Right. So McGregor and Wilson were owned by the same company. So John left and we had a new gentleman come in and take his spot. And after about a year there, I started getting calls from recruiters. And one day I got a call from a recruiter saying, uh, we've got a job with Arnold Palmer Golf Company. Would you like to interview? And obviously, the lore was the name Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer Golf Company at the time, they had the PhD irons. They had some good products. They had hot sea golf bags. They were a, a lower level company, but still had a good reputation. So I got the job and packed my bags and moved down to Chattanooga, Tennessee. And 
went in as the uh, senior VP of sales and marketing. And I look back on that. That was quite a job. I really enjoyed myself living down in Tennessee. I enjoyed the people down there, the culture down there, and then the opportunity to work for the king himself, which Mm -hmm. I get to see every quarter for three years because we did a board meeting or some kind of event. Wow. And well, this segues nicely into my next question. Did you have a chance to spend any time or at least listen to the king, to Arnold Palmer? And from my understanding, he was such a gracious man that made time for everyone, was present when he was there. Very accomplished entrepreneur himself with what he did with the Golf Channel and then getting involved investing in NetJets early on. So he certainly had a vision of what was around the corner. So with that, perhaps you can share with us a couple of nuggets of what you learned or were inspired by uh, the king himself when uh, you had the chance to listen to him speak? Yeah, there's several things, several areas he inspired me on, and I'll get to that in a minute. But what's interesting as I think back, I got to spend quite a bit of time with him at board meetings or events and, and be in a room where we'd have dinner the night before and there'd be maybe seven people in the room. And so it was a very intimate occasion where you have a few drinks, you have a nice meal, and people start telling stories, and, and he would tell some great stories. I bet. One of the highlights of me working for him was one time I presented a new set of irons we were working on to him. And as I was presenting it, and I was concluding the presentation, he looks at me and he said, what's in it for the consumer? What's it going to do for the golfer? I stumbled. At the time, we were so incensed about the looks of the club and how clean and classy it looked and how look this way, that we kind of lost sight of what really the benefits were in it for the consumer. Right. And I didn't spend enough time on that in my presentation. It was there in the club. So I learned that lesson and it, it stuck with me my whole career. So when I launched a shoe company, one of the things I always said is what's in it for the golfer? What is in it? I can explain that in seconds. I think the highlight of, of working for Arnold is a couple of takeaways that I saw. Well, he partnered up with Mark McCormick from IMG. And Mark ran his business, and Arnold did what he was good at. He played golf. He was personable. He shook hands. He kissed kids, all of that stuff. He built up Arnie's army. And in that, he created his brand, and Mark McCormick was able to go and market that. And it was quite a thing to watch because Arnold knew his position. He knew what he was good at, and he didn't try to be the businessman as well. Of course, he had a good sense of that but he understood his part in the relationship. The other thing too that was one of the highlights of my career in golf or my time in the golf industry is we're at Augusta and I was standing on the 10th tee box. He was coming off a nine and I was standing on the side of the ropes and he came up and he was waiting on the foursome and he's looking around and he sees me. He goes, Bob, how you doing? And I said, good boss, how you doing? I just put my shoulders back and I strutted down that fairway like a peacock, you know, it was, I bet (laughs) it was one of the highlights of my life to be candid. That's, that's awesome. So very interested to learn now moving forward with squares, the aha moment. So you're working with Arnold Palmer golf company, you've building up experience over your career in the, uh, the product in hard goods areas and now into apparel. So tell us about this. What was your connection then with golf shoes? Or let me ask this question. I'll keep it nice and simple because you talked about this and suddenly Arnold said this in a slightly different way than I'm about to say it, but you don't come up with a solution that's looking for a problem. What do people need? What are their pain points? What are the benefits rather than the aesthetics? Does it look cool? That's not enough. So even though your shoes with squares look cool, tell us about that. Where do you see the opportunity, the gap, 
that as you started to crystallize in your mind a shoe company or what the shoe could look like and the performance of that. So tell us about that, the embryonic stage of, of squares that was formulated in your mind for a period of time. Yeah. And again, that's influenced by a lot of my experiences in and outside of the golf industry. Mm-hmm. I, I think back when Ely Calloway created the Big Bertha and Karsten Solheim created the Ping Irons, they were seeking perimeter weighting. And perimeter weighting at the time was it. And so they went to work on a driver and an iron that had perimeter weighting. And when they got done, the club looked the way it did because that's the way perimeter weighting looked. It wasn't the other way around. They didn't worry about the fact that this Big Bertha was an oversized metal wood that looked like a snow shovel with no hosel. And it had this sound to it. And then the iron looked like something that an alien designed. It was so radical. But what they had was visual technology. They had something that was radically different, but they could back it up. They could back it up with performance. And they didn't worry about the looks. The looks were secondary to performance. You take that and then you match it up with that quote that I gave her from Booker T. Washington, Mm. which is to do a common thing in an uncommon way. So when you mix those two things together, that's where squares came from. The genesis of that was I was meeting a friend of mine at my course and we're going to have dinner. I was coming from work and I was still in my dress clothes and and at the time square toe dress shoes were in vogue. So I get to the course and he's standing and hitting balls. And as I'm talking to him, I pick up his nine iron and I go to the bay next to him and start hitting balls. And I noticed something different. I just felt different. At the time, I felt more balanced, more stable. And then I felt like, well, maybe it was just that I'm going after it a little easier. Because every ball I was hitting was going straight down the fairway, which was rare for me. I just said, something here is different. The feeling is different. And it stayed with me. It never left my head. And it stayed there for probably for about three or four years before I even did anything, which is file patents on it. And in that interim, it piqued my curiosity as to try to find out why. Why did it feel different? Was there something there? As that progressed, I started doing research. And as time went on, ground force started to be talked about and how ground force and how the shoe plays into it. It's funny, the one other thing that came to light there was in the game of golf, in my humble opinion, it really is addition by subtraction. It's how do you eliminate all of those inefficiencies? How do you eliminate you being off balance? How do you eliminate certain things in the golf swing? And if you can eliminate those bad things, they inevitably become a good thing. And you start hitting more consistent shots, frequently hitting the fairway. That's kind of the evolution that it piqued my curiosity. I started doing all of the research. It started to prove out. And then I hired here in the New England market, we've got companies like New Balance, Puma, Converse, Reebok. So it's a hotbed here for designers. I connected with a couple of great designers, award-winning designers, and went to them with the idea. First, they looked at me with kind of cross-eyed, and then they finally said, you know what? I think you got something here. And that's how it all began. Wow. Love that story. We are now going to take a short break to tell you about something new from the Mod Golf Podcast. I'm excited to announce the launch of the Mod Golf Pro Shop, where you, as part of our Mod Golf community, receive exclusive discounts on curated golf products that I love and support. We are partnering with DeWiz, Deuce, Kinona, Back to Basics Golf, Project 72 Golf, and Odin Golf 
to provide a curated selection of golf essentials to help you play better and look great while you're doing it. Use promo code MODGOLF for between 10 and 20% off your purchases to receive the best exclusive pricing that our partners offer. Go to www.modgolfpodcast.com to check out the golf gear that our fabulous brand partners are ready to deliver to your doorstep. That's the Mod Golf Pro Shop at www.modgolfpodcast.com. I'm going to double back on a couple of things that you said there because you threw a lot of great things at us there, Bob. And my background is in architecture. I don't think you, you know this, but I was an architect for the first half of my career, went to architecture school, and that's kind of led me to all, everything that we're doing in the design world in sport, especially in golf. It was ingrained in me very early on, more of kind of a modern architecture saying, and that is form follows function. function. So what you talked yes. about with yep. Big Bertha yep. and the irons, and even with the square toe, people may say, well, that, that looks unconventional. I don't know about that. Well, why is that? You didn't just do that for aesthetics. That was actually an output of ground force, of stabilization, of where you went with that. So this notion that form follows function rather than the way something looks drives the other factors. So it sounds like you've got that right right out of the gates, what you've actually learned from even Arnold and your presentation there with your irons of saying that in a slightly different way and what you've learned along the way. So Obviously, you're doing something right because I understand that Squares for the third straight year has been named Golf Digest Best Men's Golf Shoe in 2022. So obviously, you guys are, you figured out some things. You're unlocking a couple of things there. So it sounds like you're always innovating, always questioning what's next and always staying curious, which what a successful entrepreneur, forget about a serial entrepreneur, successful entrepreneur, which you definitely are, Bob, needs to do. So... Let's expand on where you go. We're going to circle back and talk about the golf shoe a little bit more, but I'm excited. I know you're excited about how you're seeing other opportunities. Golf is a big market, but sports overall is an even bigger market, massive. So I believe you made an announcement a couple of months ago. Why don't you tell us that of the sport that you are now venturing into next with Squares? Yeah, we just ventured into baseball. Mm -hmm. And when I say just, we've been out there for about a year now in test market. And it really was serendipitous. As I learned about ground force and where distance comes from in the golf swing and the functionality of the feet, how it really influences all the key fundamentals of the game. It's fascinating. The more you get into it, it's unbelievable in a sense that people just don't think about the feet. And when I tell people that the feet determine hip rotation. People say, oh, come on, are you kidding? How is that possible? And I give them an exercise. I say, put all the weight you possibly can on your trail foot, on your big toe, put all the weight you can, then try to turn your right hip back. You'll find it very difficult. But then when you put all the weight you can on the inside of your heel, your right heel, your trail heel, you can see that now you can turn your hip back. Mm. So weight distribution and balance and stability really go up the kinematic chain. And the other thing too was mobility of the foot. And when you look at mobility of the foot, when you start angling your toes to the center of the shoe, you start losing mobility for the foot. Again, I can give you another exercise. If you take your hand, you put it out in front, you move it up and down, wave it like you're waving at somebody. Right. It flows naturally. But then when you squeeze your fingers together, move your wrist up and down, you feel the tension. Well, the same is true in your foot. And it just starts providing this tension in your body that is not good for sports, particularly land-based sports. Now, when I ask people all the time when a pitcher, a pitcher who can throw the ball 105 miles an hour, he can do that because he's using or she can because they're using the ground. 
And the same with a quarterback. The reason why a quarterback can throw the ball 60 yards, it's not his arm strength. It's mm-hmm. because he's using the ground. And the same holds true pretty much in every sport. Well, in baseball, it's the same exact thing. It's a very short weight transfer back and forth. Jokingly, they say baseball is a one-legged sport. And what do I mean by that? When you throw a ball, you pick one foot up and you throw it. When you bat, you pick one foot up and the pitcher picks one foot up. When you throw the ball, you pick up a foot. So basically you're on one foot, but you're pushing off with the other one. Right. So balance and stability and ground connection is paramount. There is nothing more important than that ground connection and balance and stability. So what we have developed in golf is because of the square toe, your toes sit naturally in the shoe. And then because of the square toe, we're able to widen the base under the ball of your foot wider than any other shoe. But the reason it doesn't look it is because we start with a square toe. So it looks symmetrical coming back. So basically now you've got your toes sitting in naturally, better balance, better stability, and the wide base, more balance, more stability. And then the total surface area coverage of the bottom of the shoe on the ground, again, better balance, better stability, and energy exchange with the ground. So when we put people on pressure mats and on a track man, I can prove to them and I can show them that you are much better balanced and stable throughout the swing. And because of that, there's more energy delivered to the golf ball, which means you're going to hit the ball farther. But if you're more balanced and stable, that means better accuracy. So I tell everybody who will listen to me that balance and stability has a direct relationship with distance and accuracy, because if you're balanced and stable, you'll hit it straighter and longer. So if you can get that right and you've got a footwear that can help you improve that, then why not spend $199 on a pair of shoes than $600 on a driver? Because I can tell you the shoes out there that can render that driver impotent. I'm telling you, those lightweight (laughs) sneaker shoes that if you can hold a shoe by the heel and the toe and twist it, if you can twist that shoe, throw it away. It's not doing you any favors. So that's why I'm only hitting three out of 14 fairways. It's not my perfect repeatable swing at a 16 handicap. It's obviously it's obviously a shoe problem. So and I think I believe you are going to send me a pair of squares. So I'll get those on hopefully in a couple of weeks time. And I think on our YouTube channel, I'll also do a Mod Golf product review. So I'll get those squares on and, uh, and go from there. Maybe we'll even do a giveaway for one of our lucky listeners and viewers there done. too. And I will tell you, the interesting thing in baseball is because of the balance and stability, we sent this out and we've done this for a year now, testing with Louisville Slugger Hitting and Science Center. Mm-hmm. And they've tested this out now for a year. And in fact, we've got about 20 major league baseball players wearing this shoe right now. And it's not even out on the market. And they're wearing the prototypes. And on average, they were seeing a 2.6 miles per hour increase in exit velocity. And exit velocity is how fast the ball comes off the bat. Yes. And that 2.6 miles an hour is about 26 feet of distance. That big. Wow. So all of a sudden, a pop fly that wouldn't even make it to the warning track, all of a sudden, they're touching them all for a home run. That is correct. Yep. There we go. What I love about your unfiltered energy and passion here, for a guy that with a background in business and marketing, you sound like you now have a master's degree or a PhD in physics, biomechanics, and kinesiology, which is just a, such an awesome testament to lifelong learning, to always staying curious. You're passionate about these things. You've learned probably from experts, and it sounds like, without knowing you too well, Bob, it's like you take what you've learned from Arnie also is embrace people, engage and empower those around you that are better at doing that thing in that area of expertise and giving them the ability to run and be creative. 
Sounds like that's what you do when you've learned so much from all those people that are experts in those fields. Oh, no, no, no question, Colin. I'm just parroting some of the best minds and ground force. And I had the, the pleasure and the opportunity to meet Terry Hashimoto, who's from Canada as well, and Terry, co-founder of BodyTrack. Terry is truly a brilliant man. He's a great science guy, and he understands ground force better than anybody I've ever met. And I'm sure there's people that can equal him in his knowledge, but I don't think there's too many better than Terry. And he taught me all of this. He showed me on pressure mats. He talked about key fundamentals of how you hit the ball farther. How do you transfer the weight? How do you generate the pressure with the ground? How do you do that? And one of the simplest things I could tell anybody about the golf swing and boil it down is to think about it like you're going to snap somebody in the rear end with the towel. And what you're doing is you're going forward and you're stopping, but you bring it back and then you bring it forward and you stop. And so in the golf swing, breaking and in the snapping of the towel, it's that breaking that breaks the sound barrier. Right, right. And so when you hear that loud noise, it's literally breaking the sound barrier. And what happens in the golf swing is you get it back to your trail side. And before everything stops to the right, you come back through and you break again. And that's why your hands are moving at about 17 or 18 miles an hour. And that club hit is a 120 miles an hour is that break. And it flips that club through. And that's what Terry impressed upon me. It's how fast you can get the weight and the pressure from the trail side to the lead side. And that's what will create distance. But you can create all this pressure with the ground and this interaction with the ground, but it's how you use it. And the number one thing we identified, the difference between a tour player and one of the best amateur players is what they call postural control. Okay. And that is your ability to control your body consistently. And that's where the pros are so good and can repeat and repeat and hit those consistent shots is because we've watched hundreds of thousands of swings. Seriously, hundreds of thousands of swings out there that we can show somebody that usually it's their body moving. It's your balance point and what they call a trace line in the swing. It's these type of things that I have learned from some of the best out there, have studied it and be able to parrot what they've taught me. Love that. Love that. So I'm a design guy. So talk about my background in architecture. So I was hoping you could share a bit of your process here. I'm sure there's a little bit of trade secrets and secret sauce. So you can't share everything, but I'm really intrigued to hear about the innovation culture that you build around squares with your team, especially your design team. So how would that look? What's the process for you and the team to design 2023 is already sure ready to be shipped and already fully baked, but let's say for 2024 and even five years out. So tell us a little bit about the process from that 30,000 foot level of where you see the evolution of squares. Let's just stick with the golf shoe space right now. So pull the curtain back a little bit and tell us about that as far as your team and how you cultivate that culture of innovation with squares. Yeah, so there are two components to that. One is the fashion piece, which is the aesthetics of the shoe. Mm -hmm. And again, that's very important. Once you've got a baseline technology that is proven out, you really don't want to mess with that too much, which is the square toe and toe sitting naturally, the wider base. You don't want to mess with that because that's the inherent difference from us and everybody else. But from that point forward, you start looking at new materials. You start looking at ways that you can reinforce areas of the shoes that take the greatest amount of stress. So for instance, in the golf swing, the lateral side of the shoe takes the most stress on both, on both your front foot and your trail foot. 
So how do you reinforce that area is a key thing. And we're looking at some really cool stuff that we expect to launch at the middle point of next year. But we look at materials, we look at functionality, we look at breathability. We, we always try to improve upon what we've done here. And one of the things that I tell our designer is that what I call the Apple mentality, which is don't let anybody else antiquate you. You mm-hmm. antiquate yourself. Come out with the iPhone 12, 13, 14, 15. Keep coming out with them. And don't worry about making the guy who bought the 12 mad at you because you found a little upgrade here and so on and so forth. Keep improving. And we keep doing that, some which we don't call out, some which we do, but we're always trying to make improvements. As you know, and in particularly in architecture, is that materials play a big role in design. And that could be lighter but stronger. It could be feel. It could be a lot of different things that influence uh, materials. It's the material side of things, looking at the golf swing and how the interaction happens with your feet and ways to improve that interaction. And then also the aesthetics of it, which are colors and styles. And so we're always looking to improve the customer experience and provide a lot of value and a lot of functionality out of our products. Love that. Love that. Well, I've got lots more questions to ask you, but I do want to show some restraint here, Bob, and and hold off because you and I are going to jump over for a video call and have a slightly different conversation for our Mod Golf YouTube channel. So I really encourage all of our listeners to become viewers and check us out over there. And then when Bob holds up a shoe, you'll actually be able to see it. And we'll have more visuals for you over there too. So as I always do in the show notes, I'll include the link to our video conversation there on our YouTube channel. So One last question here to extend on the design process. Obviously, you can't share too much as far as what you're thinking in the future. You want to keep that secret. But I'm curious to know what industries or other products have inspired you over the years leading up to what you've built so far, the progression of squares? So obviously, you're not just looking around as like, oh, well, what is Footjoy doing and what is everyone else doing in the golf shoe business. Maybe you do look at that, but it seems like you are not overly concerned with that. You're staying in your lane and expanding. So I want to finish up with this one. So what other industries or or products have inspired you over the years, aesthetically and functionally with Squares? It's a great question. And and I look at a whole variety of different industries. One of my previous starts, we did a lot of work with polymers and different types of plastics and, and materials and their strengths and their weaknesses, whether it's a urethane and things of that nature. So I, I got a baseline understanding of that. So I always kind of keep up to date with new materials coming out. And interestingly enough, I look in a lot of outerwear and a lot of uh, clothing and products like that, that they're always innovating, trying to put lighter, stronger materials that are more breathable, that are moisture wicking and things like that. There's a lot of technology out there in fabrics and in materials. So you never lend a blind eye to your, your competition you got to think that they're innovating some way, somehow. And so you always keep watching them, but that's not my focal point. My focal point is trying to be on the cutting edge of new materials, new fabrics, maybe new ways to test a golf shoe, maybe Mm. new ways that are showing me interaction with the ground that I can take that learning and find a solution to. Love it. Love it. Well, why don't we leave it at that? But before you go here, why don't you let our listeners know where they can learn more about Squares and maybe order some shoes online? 
Yeah. First of all, I want to thank you for what you do. If it wasn't for people like you, companies like me couldn't get my voice out. So mm-hmm. first of all, I really appreciate you and I, I thank you for what you do from the bottom of my heart. Secondarily is you can find us at squares.com. That's S-Q-A-I-R-Z.com. We have a great promotion going on right now. $20 off, free carry bag, free hat, free three pair of socks. It's a great gift. So uh, visit us at squaresgolf.com. Very good, very good. And as I always do in the show notes, I will leave a link down there to squares.com so you can check that out. I'm sure you're very active on social media too. Any links you have there and Instagram, Twitter, everywhere else, I'll include those too. So it's uh, easy to find out what your community is up to too. So hey, Bob, why don't we leave it at that? Thank you so much for joining me today on the Mod Golf Podcast. I've learned a ton. I just love your entrepreneurial energy and I can't wait to jump on our our video call to extend the conversation. So again, thanks so much for joining me today on the Mod Golf Podcast. That was my pleasure. Thanks, Colin. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation about entrepreneurship in the golf industry, you can find more compelling episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen in. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on our homepage to hear about upcoming episodes and to enter our latest golf product giveaway. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks very much for joining me. Bye for now.